You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're talking about historical approaches to cybersecurity design and the signs that it may actually be time for a change. Today, I'm joined by Teresa Payton. Teresa is a leading expert in internet security, net crime, fraud mitigation, and IT strategy. She was listed last year in Cybersecurity Ventures' book, 100 Fascinating Females Fighting Cybercrime. In fact, she is the first woman to serve as White House Chief Information Officer during the President George W. Bush administration. Teresa is the author of Manipulated, Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and to Distort the Truth. And some listeners may recognize her for her role as Deputy Director of Intelligence Operations on the CBS reality show Hunted. Teresa, welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea. Yes, no, thank you so much, Anne. And uh, it's great to be with you. It's too bad we're virtual, um, but it was certainly great to, uh, to see you at RSA Security Conference out in California. And uh, it's wonderful to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much. And that was uh, that was fun at RSA. Teresa and I were together judging a group of uh, college students who were the finalists um, for their submissions to RSA. And it was really, really um, energizing, I would say, um, to, to watch those folks and their presentations. And I was seated, Teresa, next to Keith Alexander, who um, was providing running commentary, as he will, <laughs> during the event. <laughs> Well, and I certainly appreciate the Microsoft security blanket um, that you gave me when I saw you, and we definitely use it. That's great. So this is, um, you know, I've been in cybersecurity quite a while. You have also. This is an exciting time. It's a different time. It's unique. Um, we've always had to navigate a lot of challenges, but, you know, the pandemic is has ushered in the dawn of a, a completely new era of risk. And but before we go too deep in that, can you talk a little bit about yourself? Um, talk about your recent book and and what even you know brought you to this field? Yeah, sure, absolutely, Anne. So um, the the book, I'll I'll just do a real quick on that because we'll probably get into more of the details later. Uh, but my my new book, uh, my first two books, I wrote with a privacy lawyer, my co-author uh, Ted Claypool. He's absolutely brilliant, and I really enjoyed writing those books with him. Privacy in the age of big data and protecting your internet identity, are you naked online? Um, but I had this real passion project to expose misinformation and manipulation campaigns. And I actually had it before we knew what the Russians had done in the 2016 US elections, as well as their meddling in whether or not Brexit uh, was going to happen and even the separatists up in Spain. and. Uh, I, I was watching the misinformation manipulation campaigns unfold on social issues uh, to uh, enter into fracking or not fracking, um, regardless of how you feel about that. Uh, actually, nation state operatives were involved in acting as if they were Americans and arguing on both sides of the argument to vaccinate your children or not vaccinate your children. So all of these social issues. and. 
Uh, then the 2016 um, revelations started to come out and the Mr. Mueller had his report come out. And that's when I finally got the opportunity to um, have a publisher accept the idea. And we were off to the races um, working and uh, taking the research that I had already done and then working with the security community to continue that research. So really exciting stuff. I always say about this career, and and um, I'm sure lots of people feel this way, this is a career that chose me. When I first came out of graduate school, I came out of University of Virginia's um, Management Information Systems program, their Master of Science. And if you had asked me at the time what my career path was going to be, I would have told you, well, I'm going to change the world through expert systems and artificial intelligence development. Then I'm going to go to law school and then I'm going to run for U.S. Senate. So that was like my career path. I, I haven't gone to law school. I haven't run for U.S. Senate. I did do AI and expert systems development, but obviously I took some turn and I'm in cybersecurity. And the reason being is once I started working on the cutting edge of technology, I had the opportunity to work for Barnett Bank uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. My husband stationed at Mayport, Florida in the Navy at the time and uh, doing really incredible uh, expert systems and artificial intelligence work for them. I ended up on the front lines of cybercrime, uh, money launderers, uh, terrorist financing and fraudsters. And that's really where I had the opportunity to have exposure to having both cybersecurity as well as focusing on how do I make technology delivery to our bank customers something they actually want to use that is also secure. Um, I had the opportunity, I was in banking 16 years actually, uh, when I got the call from the White House, a call I almost didn't return and because I thought I was being socially engineered because I thought I don't know anybody at the White House, so unless I'm in trouble, um, I, I don't think I'm going to return this call, but I'm so glad I did and had the opportunity to serve for two and a half years uh, for President George W. Bush, the end of his second term. So 2006 to 2008 was the second half of his second term. And wow, what what an incredible honor and a huge technology innovation and transformative time. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing today. Excellent. It, it, it's um it's been a, it was a fascinating journey for you and I, I have to tell you I'm also um someone who planned a career in law I wasn't planning to run for the Senate but I was going to law school and uh, planning a to a career in law working um, on international relations that was going to be the area that I focused on and ended up not going to law school also because I fell into technology and I loved it dynamic awesome. changing. You know the whole thing, right? Well, so still time to go back to law school, and so if you end up going or I end up going, we should go together. Yeah, we should. And yes, I I've often said that when I you know whatever that word retire means, that maybe I'll just go to law school at that point in time. But back to cybersecurity. So um, you know, people, when you think about the way we work today, right? It's it's very very different. You know, when I first started my career, there was there wasn't even a laptop you were handed. You walked in, literally had a green screen computer on my desk. And now I look at the power and the compute capacity in the iPhone that I carry around with me, and people are you know using their devices in really different ways, and people are keeping different data and interacting with their devices, and social media has changed everything. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship we've built with our devices and how that how that links in with privacy and with identity and with security? Yeah, and isn't it interesting, and that you know, pre-COVID, so if you think about the conversations we were all having in 2019, 
there was studies being done on both youth and adults saying we were all plugged in way too much and we needed to unplug uh, for our own health sake. Uh, and now in, co in COVID-19 environment and even uh, in post-pandemic, uh, we're basically moving towards a, the device is actually our outreach to the whole world. I mean, you and I are able to talk today and we're sitting in two completely different cities because we're tied into a digital platform. Uh, so to your point, we one of the things that uh, was interesting to me, and if you think about, so when I was at the White House 2006-2008, the iPhone came out in 2007. It's hard to believe it was only you know, 13 years ago that the iPhone came out and wow, has everything changed? Everybody has a computer basically in your pocket and it does more than sort of the original computers were doing, right? You can play music, watch a movie, you can check in with your family, you can do work, you can do school, you could use it as a phone if you want to, but you don't have to. And, you know, it's used for so much more um, than just a smartphone. And so that ubiquitous nature of technology in our lives right now really does have an implication on both privacy, but also the risk versus reward trade-off of, well, maybe that data could be really helpful. Uh, and so all of the things that are collecting our patterns of life, how we drive, where we drive, uh, the first thing we do in the morning, do we talk to our voice assistant, Alexa, or Amazon Echo, or Google Home, um, or do we, you know, talk to our, um, you know, kind of our Microsoft voice assistant and say, play me some music and what's the weather and tell me the news. So all of those patterns of life are being collected. And on the good side, the plus side of things, it could potentially be used to help us know we actually have a health issue. Think of the people that, and that have like wearable fitness and learned uh, you actually have a heart issue right now you need to go to the doctor that they wouldn't have known had they had wearable fitness well there's also a privacy implication to that as well and the question is how is this data which could help me how could it be used in a way that violates my privacy or is used to judge me and now suddenly i'm considered a risky individual so now my insurance costs more maybe somebody doesn't hire me for a job i mean we don't know how some of this data collected about us could be used. And that's where we really have to do a better job. I think, you know, uh, states like California with CCPA and the European Union with GDPR, they mean well with those frameworks. The frameworks are much more of a kind of compliance check the box, but I think it's time for a dialogue around what are the appropriate guardrails that need to be stood up so that technology helps us, but from a privacy perspective doesn't hurt us. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I think one of the challenges we have and um, is that people don't read terms of service. So they don't necessarily explicitly know what data is being collected, but most importantly, what's going, what's happening with that data, right? There's a lot of um, trust. There's a lot of just inherent trust. Oh, I'm going to put on my fitness activator and I'm going to just assume that it takes care of my fitness level and my health and it's just tracking me, not necessarily recognizing what else is going on, if that makes sense. It does. It absolutely does make sense. And, and, and you bring up a great point because this is where we don't mean to be, but as the human involved in the equation with technology, we do tend to be the weakest link. And this has been a huge oversight, um, in my humble opinion, for 
the security community and and you and I've even had conversations about this and like I mean when's the last time somebody that was in the end user community ran up uh, this is pre-COVID of course and hugged you and said I don't know if it was you that created strong passwords but oh and the longer the better I love them right and I know Microsoft <laughs> right I mean I've never been hugged and I know you haven't been hugged for that particular uh security feature and functionality. Now, Microsoft has been leading the way in going passwordless, and there's a lot of really cool things you guys are doing there. And, and why are you doing that? Because you realize that human-centered design and security is going to be the way we combat cybercrime. You know, the old way of doing it of sort of the burden was all on the user. It was like, okay, don't forget user ID and strong password. Don't forget, have a clean device. Don't forget, don't click on links, don't open attachments. And then somebody says, but that's my job. My job is I respond to emails. Like, I, that's my job. I'm supposed to click on links. How do I know which link is good and which one isn't? Oh, well, you should be running antivirus. So all of the burdens that we put on the user, the one thing I'm incredibly excited about is I do feel like we're finally at that tipping point where the technology has caught up and we're only limited by our creative minds and our focus on human-centered design because the technology is finally here where security truly could be something just built into design and something that just puts this warm hug around the user as security versus something they have to remember to do and it's frustrating for them. Yeah, and I think that, I think both um, inclusive design but easy to use, seamless, transparent, built into, even built-in design, right? So they can have that trust and they don't actually have to do anything themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's it's huge. It's really so important uh, that we have that. And, and again, so we're working in this COVID-19 mode right now. And what we're observing is uh, from an incident response standpoint and that many of the points of intrusion are mistakes made by the human in the environment. In some cases, it's people clicking on links and opening attachments. In other cases, it's configuration issues. So when the, the necessary rush to ensure business resiliency and business continuity of operations and deploying laptops and devices and people logging in from home, I mean, we have we have full um you know kind of companies that never allowed work from home before where almost everybody's working at home where it's practical and we're seeing in those configuration issues where it had to be configured by the human um, that those were the entry points and nobody wants to learn that they were the one that allowed cyber criminals into their company and so the more that we can do to design for them instead of relying on them you know, and let them do what they were hired to do, I think the better off we're all going to be. I agree. And we talk a lot about digital empathy. Um, and we talk a lot about that ability that the systems, and you, you've you talked about it for years, that it starts with design, but the system has to be fault tolerant to the end user, right? And the end user shouldn't be penalized for making an error because they're not, we shouldn't expect every end user to be a cybersecurity expert and to understand system design. No, you're right. And and we have examples of this too, Anne, in sort of the physical world, right? So we, we have neighborhood watch programs. 
uh, Department of Homeland Security in America put out the, if you see something, say something. You know, nobody says, please apprehend people that you believe are committing a crime if you see it. Nobody says that. You know, they say, call um, call somebody in to help you from security. And, you know, that's really the mindset that we have to have, which is giving people just enough awareness, but really kind of having it built into the technology design so that, like you said, and they're not penalized, you know, they're just doing their job and the alarm bells and warnings go off or they have a very easy way to report something doesn't feel right to me. Maybe somebody should take a look at it. Exactly. Um, well, let's change topics. Let's talk a little bit about the upcoming um, presidential election, which is just in a few months now um, here in the U.S. And I, I have a high level of confidence in um, Chris Krebs and his organization. But as you know, um, elections are run by states um, in the U.S. Um, and Microsoft has, you know, put out our technology via defending democracy with things like Election Guard. And we're obviously very excited um, and have had a successful pilot. And you've written a book about efforts to hijack elections um, and things, you know, not even the actual um, targeting of the physical election, but but the actual, you know, disinformation and everything. But that all being said, how can we, you know, psychologically, right, defend ourselves against thinking that there's going to be something wrong with this election from either an outside interference or the vote gets hacked or a ransomware attack? And what's top of mind for you? What would you advise people who are, who are concerned about going out to vote in these in these circumstances and then add on top of that a global pandemic? Yes, yeah. So um, first of all, I, um, I'm so glad you brought up, you know, Chris Krebs, um, the CISA organization has worked so hard uh, in providing actually free services to the states, um, briefings, security briefings, including classified ones to make sure everybody's aware of what's going on, how to protect and defend. Microsoft uh, was one of the early leaders in offering free tools and um, different types of kits to kind of help uh, the states improve their technology. And I, I mean, I just applaud Microsoft because you basically looked at something that could have been a revenue generator and said, you know what, democracy and protecting and securing elections shouldn't be, you know, kind of where the revenue, you know, like this is a greater good moment for all of us. And so um, I'm really glad you brought uh, the, the program up that Microsoft has worked so hard on, but also DHS CISA because they have worked tirelessly. Um, but all that being said, um, there's always been in sort of the different counties that run their local elections. There's always been, even before we had electronic voting booths, irregularities. What I have a lot of faith and confidence is, is each board of elections in their states, they have a process. And so if there are irregularities, they have a process on how they audit those irregularities. And so to say that something's going to be thrown at scale through the local level, uh, I think would be pretty sophisticated and something that Hollywood movies are made of. That doesn't mean that there won't be nefarious intentions at local levels of you know ballot stuffing and things of that nature but the board of elections in each state has worked really really hard um, to avoid that and have the right processes in place to you know if, if if people are old enough to remember maybe you read about a history book about gore and bush and the dangling chads in florida you know there is a process that's tried and true uh so the misinformation around that also on social issues. You know, one of the things I learned in doing the research for my book 
is I thought that many of the cyber operatives uh, that were trained by nation states and acting on behalf of uh, nation states for the manipulation and misinformation campaigns, I went into it with a two-part hypothesis. One, that they were using it to manipulate their own citizens into thinking their way of governing was better, and that actually proved to be true. Two, that they were manipulating these different um, issues, whether it was Brexit, uh, separatists in Spain, uh, Turkey, uh, India, I talk about everything going on around the globe or America. I thought one other hypothesis I had, Anne, was they were focused on picking winners and losers and that they kind of had favorites. In 2016, uh, Russia definitely, it's not that they didn't care who won or lost, but they definitely preferred one over the other. But the other thing that I learned that surprised me, Anne, was the revenue generated by misinformation manipulation campaigns actually makes the manipulators rich. And so, for example, I found that the Macedonians uh, really puzzled somebody that I interviewed in the book, and I won't do too many spoiler alerts, but uh, the Macedonians basically were promoting anti-Hillary, pro-Bernie, and pro-Trump. And so it's like, well, how does that make any sense? And they said, oh, we're pro-capitalism. We're, we're not pro-Bernie and pro-Trump or anti-Hillary. We tested a model, and when we were pro-Clinton and anti the other two, it only made a little bit of money. And so we tested the model, and the model that makes us the most money on clickbait ads and uh, kind of promoting things as news and people click on it and go through um, to the actual news site, we make pennies on the click. And what makes us the most money is to be pro-Trump, pro-Bernie, and anti-Hillary. I mean, and that was something I did not expect when I went on that journey. So when we talk um, on social media, I was actually talking to someone um, earlier today that I don't think that society was ever prepared for social media to explode the way it exploded. And when you talk about just the age of the iPhone, if you think about the age of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, YouTube, whatever it is, right? They're not that old either. And I don't think that society, certainly not laws and regulations, but even society as a whole has caught up with social media. So can you talk a little bit about the stakes in social media for that specific to privacy, security, all of the topics that we've been discussing? You know, studies have been done around, uh, first of all, for anyone of any age. What's interesting about social media is they compared getting a like or a heart or some type of very positive comment back on something that you post, they said the dopamine rush that you get from that, that feel good rush that you get from that is similar to winning a hand at a blackjack table. So the reason why it ends up being so addictive for anybody of any age, I mean, if you think about that, right, that rush that you get, I, I don't do a lot of gambling, but that rush that you get when you win something or something really cool happens, you actually get a similar level of rush. It's almost like a candy high. And, and so now we've, again, we've moved into this uh, COVID-19 world globally where we're supposed to be physically distant but we want to be, we're social animals. So we're socially connected on these platforms. The challenge that we have is the privacy settings on these platforms are all opt-in. 
You have to opt into everything. Otherwise, your life is wide open. The other thing to know as well for uh, tweens, teens, and young adults, they feel fiercely protective of their privacy from their elder family members, but they don't mind being completely public about everything they do with people they don't even know. So they wanna keep things private from their aunties and their grandmoms, but they don't mind broadcasting everything to the public and studies have been done on that. So what are the long-term uh, implications of this? Well, for example, oftentimes for CEOs and board members, uh, my team and I will actually do a digital footprint and show how so much information is out there either by the kids or the kids friends or uh, somebody that provides services to the family of a CEO or a board member and how all of that information by itself are just little pieces of a puzzle and you don't really know what it is you're looking at but if you spend just a little bit of time aggregating it you understand patterns of life you also understand different things that could be used in a social engineering campaign, whether it's in person or digital. And then of course there are long-term implications for your my privacy is that data gets collected, even though many social media companies say, oh, well, before we sell it to third parties, we're anonymizing it. If you take four different anonymized databases and start connecting it, there was a study done by uh, MIT and a few other participating universities that showed you could get down to figuring out, like if you use gender by zip code, Census Bureau data by zip code, purchasing habits by zip code, and just a little bit of social media information, you could narrow it down within five people who that social media, that those preferences actually might belong to. So that to me is startling, and I don't think people understand we actually have, you know, we're on, we're on the verge of consumerized quantum computing. It's not going to be that far away. And so we're going to have that power to be able to crunch through that data at speeds we've never seen before, which means very similar to the old Tom Cruise movie Minority Report, you could in potentially real time really know what's going on with an individual at any moment and there will be no place to hide. So that's fascinating i guess as we start to wrap up here what what do you think um consumers right civilians your average person who isn't a technology who isn't a cybersecurity expert but is probably pretty active on social media what advice do you have for them for their own social media use but also you know for their families for their children i'm so glad you asked that Anne. Uh, for starters i always tell people if if you can help it especially when it relates to vacation and you might have um you know young people in your life one of the things you may want to do is think about post where you've been not where you are when you go on vacation so save the vacation photos until you get back especially if you have little people just from a social engineering and cam canvassing and sort of nefarious actors who may be where you are on vacation and when you post where you are, it tells where you're not, which is your house. Um, the other thing to think about is, and I have a little fun with this. I actually, in my profile, I actually have a social media birthday. I have a social media year. It has nothing to do with my actual birthday. Um, and same thing with like, if they ask for other information, you have to remember that because that might be important for like a password reset or getting your account back. But I like to just sort of throw people off their game, including the third party marketers who buy the information, 
So you may actually want to create sort of an alternate persona because remember the data that you're putting into the profiles is really for third party marketing also may be used to help you like reset your information. And if you don't use what's in public domain records about you, you'll actually throw off somebody trying to take over your account if you use a completely different birth year. And so really what you're doing is you're playing your own information game to sort of protect your privacy and protect your accounts. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, this was great. I've, I've been looking forward to this. You know, I invited uh, Teresa Payton to be a guest on Afternoon Cyber Tea because she has such a broad and interesting background. And she's fascinating. When you listen to her speak about, you know, topics from working in the White House, working in financial services, and her decision to pursue cybersecurity and her depth of knowledge on, you know, things like election interference and social media, I knew she'd be a fascinating guest. The thing I liked most about the episode, Teresa, was she gave really practical advice to end users not just to you know CISOs or security folks of how to secure their systems, but for end users from just practical advice from how to think about you know social engineering by what you post on social media. And I thought that would be really useful um, for folks who are listening to the podcast and, and don't necessarily think about those things every day. And uh, I also want to thank all of our listeners and invite them to join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. This week on Uncovering Hidden Risks, we explore how you can use a cloud-native application protection platform to solve different challenges. Be sure to listen in and follow us at uncoveringhiddenrisks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.